0: Hi, this is Eric Luty for the Daily Thunder Podcast. If you are enjoying these messages and want to take these truths even deeper, I invite you to join us in Windsor, Colorado at Ellerslie for one of our upcoming five-week or week-long discipleship training programs. Ellerslie's discipleship training has been designed to ignite your spiritual fire and to give you the tools for a Christianity that really works. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Uh, well, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians
1: chapter 3. I'm uh, really excited uh, this fall to be walking through. Uh, it's it's going to end up being like a mini-series, but we're walking through the very end of chapter 3 of Ephesians. And uh, s- when we first started... I don't know, a couple of years ago with Daily Thunder. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do is I've been I've been studying and preaching through Ephesians for longer than I care to admit. Uh, I, think, I think it's now going on, I don't know, 14, 15 years. And as I was originally going through it, I was about halfway through chapter 5. And when we started what we're doing here, I said, you know, I don't have any of my early stuff recorded, so I'm going to go back and I'm just going to re-preach this whole thing. And I don't know if you've ever done this with the Word, but <clears throat> it's like, I, I've done an in depth study, at least to the first five and a half chapters. And going back through it the second time, I, God has taken this to a whole nother level. And I'm just seeing it in a whole nother I don't know. It's just, it's just so much richer in my personal life. And so over the last two years or so, we've been slowly prodding through the book of Ephesians, which is delightful. Some of you look already nervous. <clears throat> We're not taking that long for this series, it's just seven weeks. However, uh, anyway, we're 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 just walking through. I'm just so excited. Uh, one, because we're going to be finishing up chapter three. We're going to be halfway through. Uh, but it's just a powerful section. And uh, for those who have not heard any of the early stuff, uh, I think this is study number seventy uh, in Ephesians so far, which is fun. So you've got some catching up to do. Uh, and if you want to track those down, <clears throat> they're on the Eldersley website or I've taken all of the Ephesians studies and put them on its own little podcast, and so if you ever want to search for it, you can just search for deeper Christian Ephesians and they all pop up, uh, and they're just all in one place. If that's helpful, if you ever want to go back and, and listen to the first 69 studies, <laughs> that sounds ridiculous. Uh, but we're, <clears throat> we're in chapter 3 of Ephesians, and we're going to be looking at uh, verse uh, 14 down through verse 21 over the next several weeks. And uh, what I'd like to do is I just want to read that entire section, just so it's fresh in our mind, and and just want to kind of set ourselves before, uh, before the Word this morning. And I would encourage you, even as we walk through this, uh, if you just want something fun to do for kicks and giggles, uh, whether you're here listening or whether you're uh, online, uh, I would encourage you to just be pondering this section over these next next several weeks. In fact, I would encourage you to even do this study w- with me uh, and just be studying a little bit ahead. And, uh, and I'll try to remember each, each time to tell you what we're going to be looking at in the next the next uh, study. Uh, but we'd love for you just to be pondering and, and just even working through your own study of how to study and and, and how, how do I wrestle with the text. I think it could be a very profitable time for all of us uh, as we walk through this incredible section. Uh, it's the second prayer that Paul's praying in the book of Ephesians. And uh, this is what he says. This is uh, Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> Paul says, For this reason... And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. I added the last two. Uh, isn't that a powerful passage? And uh, I just, I'm personally, it's one of my favorite sections in Ephesians. And uh, even before we get into this, I just kind of want to kind of lay an overview of what uh, Ephesians is all about for those who may not have been through the studies. Uh, Ephesians has six chapters and the first three of those are all focused on the theology of what Paul is getting at. Uh, the last three, uh, chapters four through six, is all on the practicality of living out that theology. theology which obviously didn't make any sense to you because you're looking at me like it didn't make any sense. (laughs) So let me give it to you again. The first three chapters of Ephesians is the content. Uh, It's the thrust of what Paul is doing. It's it's the theology section. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. But he's given the content of what he really wants you to grab a hold of. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he says, okay, if this is what your life is supposed to look like, Let me illustrate what that looks like lived out in your world down on your street. And so chapters four through six becomes the practicality of the living out of the content. Does that make any sense? So chapters one through three is all about this is what it's supposed to to be in your life. Chapters four through six is this is what it looks like lived out in your life. All right, we good? (laughs) Okay, praise the Lord. Uh, it's really interesting as you, as you get into this, and we're looking at verse 14 this morning. In fact, we're only looking at the first three words. But Paul starts Ephesians 3.14 by saying, for this reason. Now that begs a question, because as a good student of the word, when you come to something like a therefore, right, or a because, you have to say, well, what is he, what is he doing? For this reason. Well, obviously what he's doing is he's saying, what I'm about to be praying in verses 14 down to verse 21 is all based upon something that I've been talking about previously. Does that make sense? In other words, he says, for this reason, I am praying this prayer. Well, why am I praying this prayer? It's because I gave a whole bunch of stuff before this. So the only way to understand what we're about to get into in terms of the prayer is you've got to get an understanding of what he's been saying and all the content. So turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to give a grand overview of the first three chapters of Ephesians. I'm going to condense 69 studies down into whoo, 20 minutes. And I know you wish every preacher would just do this and give you, give you the 20-minute version, but we won't. <clears throat> uh, it's interesting, even in this, in this talk, we're in, the, we're in a prayer section. Uh, the first prayer section is in Ephesians chapter 1, Starting in verse uh, 15, going down to verse 19. Now, I just want to bring this up because I just find this almost ironic, almost hilarious. Uh, Paul, it seems to me, has no idea the difference between praying and preaching. Because as you get into Ephesians chapter 1 and you look at verse 15, he he starts in verse 15, he goes down to verse 19, and he's praying for those in Ephesus. And by extension, he's praying for you because he's talking about believers. And he gets into verse 18, and look at verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you would know the hope of his calling, the riches, the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. But then it's like he's mid prayer, and suddenly in the middle of verse 19, he goes, Oh, this is so exciting. I got to start preaching. And so it's like he's praying, but he pauses the prayer and he starts preaching. And the preaching message of the power of God, which he's been praying, goes from the middle of verse 19 of chapter 1 all the way down to pretty much chapter 3, verse 13. And you're like, well, Paul, when did you say amen? He didn't. And now in in our section, chapter 3, verse 14, he starts for this reason. Now, if you go back to the very beginning of chapter 3, He starts chapter three with, for this reason. And most scholars tell us that what Paul's probable, his probable intent was that when he started chapter three, and you understand that he's writing chapters, right? He's just writing a letter. But as he got to what we would call chapter three, verse one, for this reason, he was going to just jump into like verse 14. Hey, I'm going to pray for you. But he has this overwhelming thought of, oh, I need to talk about the mystery, and so he starts for this reason, and then he preaches the mystery that flows immediately into the prayer. Isn't that awesome? I like that. So am I preaching or praying right now? You'll never know, because I'm not going to say amen. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <clears throat> anyway, I just, I just find it ironic, or just, I just find it fun. Uh, but really quick, for this reason... What is Paul tying this all back to? And I really think it's the entire message of what he's been talking about since the beginning of chapter 1. So in chapter 1, uh, he gives an introduction in the first two verses. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you, which is his common introduction, his common greeting. But in verse 3, down to verse 14 of chapter 1, you have the blessing section. And if you were walking through the blessing section, you, you remember as we are walking through each of these blessings that you have in Jesus, that every single blessing, you gotta get a hold of this, every single blessing that God has for you is found in one place. You wanna guess what it is? Jesus. That you do not get Jesus plus a blessing, Jesus is the blessing. Uh, God does not give you Jesus plus love, he gives you Jesus who is your love. He does not give you Jesus plus peace, He gives you Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. Are you getting this? He doesn't give you Jesus plus joy. He gives you Jesus, who, according to Psalm 16, verse 11, is the fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So everything you need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1, 3 says, is found in one place, Jesus. And can you think of one single thing you need outside of life and godliness? Nope, I can't either which means everything that you need is Jesus. And when you come to God and say, God, I really need, or whatever you put there, do you know what he's going to give you? He's not going to give you the thing. He's going to give you Jesus, who becomes everything that you need. That is phenomenal. And so as you go into the blessing section then, as you walk through every single blessing, whether it's blessings coming from the Father, blessings from the Son, or blessings from the Spirit, and it is interesting because Paul uses that language in this, in this passage, Uh, For example, in verses 3 down to verse 6, it's the blessings you have in the Father. Verses 7 down through verse uh, verse 12 is the blessings you have in the Son. Verses 13 and 14 is the blessings you have in the Spirit. But every single blessing finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Which means the moment you have Jesus, you have everything you need. Do you know how phenomenal that is? Now, Paul, again, as I already mentioned, shifts in verse 15 and begins to give a prayer. And his prayer, as he gets into this whole thing, uh, the very heart of the prayer is verse 18. Uh, In fact, look back at verse 17. He says, I pray that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And the whole idea is that that there'd be this unveiling, that the curtains will be pulled back, and you begin to see the deep things of God in your life. And I don't know about you, but I desperately need God to unveil, to pull back the curtains and reveal the deep things of himself in my life. And as you come to the very heart of the passage, verse 18, it's a prayer for enlightenment that you would somehow grab a hold of and that you would understand three key things Paul says, the hope of your calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance and his surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul says, I really want you to get a hold of those three things. Your calling, your inheritance, and the power that is working within you. Now you get to the middle of verse 19, and again, he's, he's, he is praying, but he's now preaching about the power. And you say, okay, well, Paul, can you give me an illustration of this overwhelming power of God that is, that is working? And Paul goes, oh, I'll, I'll give you several examples. The first example is in verse 20, uh, down through the end of the chapter. Uh, verse 23. And it's the illustration of Jesus. And Paul says, Jesus is the demonstration of the power of God. That here is Jesus. He's deader than a doornail. And, And what did the father do? The father reached his hand into the physical deadness of Jesus and yanked the physically dead Jesus from physical death and brought him into physical life. And that was a demonstration of the power of God. And if that wasn't good enough, and that would have been phenomenal, But then he took the physically alive Jesus, brought him into the heavenly realms and sat him at the right hand of the father, far above all principalities and powers and mights and dominions and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come and put all things beneath his feet and gave him a head over all things. Isn't that a phenomenal reality? And so Jesus is now sitting in a position of power and authority. And that whole thing that the father was doing in the life of Jesus is a picture of the power of God. All right, God, uh, that's, or sorry, yeah, Paul, that's great. That's a great illustration of the power of God. Can you give me another illustration? Paul says, oh, I'll give you another one. Chapter two, verses one through 10. And in chapter two, verses one through 10, the illustration is you. You have become a demonstration of the overwhelming power of God. And he, and he says in the first three verses that here you are, you are dead. Not physically, spiritually and then he gets into verse four and he has two of the most incredible words of the entire new testament but god that here you are deader than a doornail spiritually here you are just full of just this corruption and sin and depravity and what did god do but god reached his hand into your spiritual deadness and just as he yanked jesus from physical death and brought him into physical life he's going to take you from spiritual death and bring you into spiritual life Please contain your excitement. Isn't that phenomenal? And if that wasn't good enough, and that would have been... Do you know what he does? He goes on and says he takes you and brings you into the heavenly realms and sits you in Christ Jesus. And all things that have been placed beneath his feet are now beneath your feet because you are seated in Christ Jesus. And your life has been made a demonstration of the overwhelming power of God to this world. That when this world looks upon your life, they should not see you, they are supposed to see Him. Why? Because His power has radically changed you, and that you are a demonstration of His overwhelming power, His gospel, His love, His mercy, His goodness. You have become a demonstration of that to the world around you. Paul goes, Oh, that was so exciting. Let me give you another illustration. And in starting verse 11, down to verse 22, the end of that chapter, Paul gives the illustration of the church. He says, do you realize that the church, the body of Christ, is a demonstration of the overwhelming power of God? So just as God moved in the the physical life of Jesus, hey, just as God moved in your spiritual life, do you know what God is doing? He is demonstrating his power in the body of Christ. Well, how has he done that? you have these two groups. You have Jews and you have Gentiles. And the Jews did not like the Gentiles. And the Gentiles could care less about the Jews. In fact, do you know how severe this was, this division? This division was so intense, this cracks me up. and Not like a ha-ha crack, it's more, well, sort of. It has been said that the Jews during the time of Jesus were so wrapped up in themselves and what God was doing, hey, I'm a Jew, that they looked at the Gentile world. And you know who the Gentiles are? Us. (laughs) The Jews looked at the Gentiles and said, Do you know the only reason why God created the Gentiles was that the Gentiles were going to be fuel. For the fires of hell, bless the Lord. Can you imagine? Here is a group of people Now you understand, you go back to the Abrahamic promise in Genesis chapter 12. God shows this man named Abraham and said, in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And somehow the Jews forgot that part. All they heard is, oh, we're a blessing. And we get the blessing. And God has chosen us. We are the chosen people and pssst, on everyone else. Forgetting the fact that the Jews, what the Jews had was supposed to be a demonstration of something that the outside world would look at what they had and said, can I have what you have? And you see that in scripture, Rahab. Rahab is a Gentile who looked at what the Jews had and said, I need in on that. And she became a part of the lineage of Jesus. Ruth, the Moabitess, she's a Gentile. And yet she saw what God was doing through the life of Naomi and the Israelites that she says, I refuse, I'm going to cling to you, which literally means to stick like glue. Naomi, I'm not letting you go. I want what you have. And she became in the line of David. She became in the lineage of Jesus. And so you see a picture of this, of what it was supposed to have been like. But by the time you get to Jesus, in that time, in that culture, the mentality of the Jews were, oh, we are the chosen people, God has blessed us, and the rest of you are for hell, because something's got to fuel it. Now, that's going to be really hard to make friends out of those two groups. When, you're, when your friend looks at you and says, you know what you're here for? Hell. It's really hard to have a good relationship. Wouldn't that make sense? Do you know what? Jesus has done, Paul says, you want to see an overwhelming picture of the power of God? He has taken these two groups and he's broken every wall of division. And then in verse 14, he says, he's made these two groups one and Jesus himself has become our peace. And what's really interesting, I've been studying that word peace recently, just a fresh, and, and I've been preaching this. And I've missed a whole layer of peace that I I was like, man, I wish I can go back and redo all those. Because there's this idea of shalom, what Paul's picking up in terms of the Hebrew idea of peace, that it's it's not just a removal of enemy faction, it's not just tranquility, it's not just a rest. It's the idea of there's been hostility between these two groups. And peace, what peace really means is that not only has reconciliation happened between the two groups, which means there's no longer hostility. But now those two groups have united themselves. By the way, he's brought peace in your life because he's dealt with the sin of your soul. And he has created peace in you. Do you know what he's done with these two groups? He's brought peace because he himself is our peace. He's removed every hostility and he's made these two groups one. Do you know how phenomenal that is? That is a demonstration of the power of God. Uh, let me put it in a modern context. Uh, we have these things called denominations. By the way, do you know what the word denomination means? Division. It's as I'm going to have my denomination, meaning what? I'm going I'm to have a, my division from that group. And of course, then someone here goes, "I'm going to have a division out of that group. I'm going to have a division out of this." And 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 now we have hundreds of denominations, which really doesn't bespeak of the unity that we're called to have in John 17. (laughs) Could you imagine what it would look like for God to do such a work in this hour that we just get rid of all the denominations? What would we have? We would call it the church. Wouldn't that be phenomenal? I don't think that's possible, Nathan. Hello? If he can remove the dividing walls of the Jews and the Gentiles, surely he can remove... Some of you don't think this is possible. Do you realize that when we get to heaven, I'm so convinced of this, when we get to heaven, there is not going to be a single Jewish Christian in heaven. There's not. And there's not going to be a single Gentile Christian. Do you know what there's going to be? Christian. Which tells you, not one single Baptist is going to make it. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They're not going to, they're not making it. And I'm quite convinced not a single Lutheran is going to go. And those Methodists, mm mm-mm. You're like, well, I'm a charismatic. They're not going either. Do you know who's gonna make it? Christians. And we have our dumb little jokes about you know, when we get to heaven, and you know, of course, the Baptist things are the only group here, and so they're gonna have a corner, and the Lutherans are gonna have their corner, and the Methodists are gonna have their corner, and the you know, the Charismatics are gonna have their corner. We have a lot of corners in heaven. And you know, we have this group over here, and this group over here, and we have this group over here, and this group over here. And folks, that's not gonna be so. When you get to heaven, you're not gonna say, are you a Baptist or a Methodist? You're gonna go, oh, you're a Christian and you are reflecting the reality of the life of Jesus. That would be a demonstration of the power of God. And folks, if he could do it back then, surely he could do it today. But that's a demonstration of the power of God. Why? Because he is our peace. Now he comes thundering into chapter 3. And the first three-ish verses, Paul gives another illustration of the power of God, which is himself. Paul says, my life is a demonstration of the power of God. Why? I was a Pharisee. I was a Jew. And do you know what God has called me to? The Gentiles. And if you think it's crazy that God could remove the dividing walls between the Jews and the Gentiles, and now there's one body, do you realize what the power of God had to have done in my life as a Jew of Jews, as a Pharisee of Pharisees? In fact, I, not, I, mean, I persecuted the church and I hated the Gentiles more than anybody else. And yet, what has God done in my life? He's done such a deep work in my life. The power of God is being demonstrated to such a degree that now I am called the apostle to the Gentiles. That is a demonstration of the power of God. And then he gets into verse 3, at the end of verse 3, down to verse 13, and he begins to talk about this grand mystery. That there's this mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations and now is being revealed and if you've missed the whole mystery section, you can go back and listen to it. It's, it's wonderful. And he gets into verse 14, and he says, For this reason. So what reason is he talking about? All of that. And if I, could, if I can just take all of that, and if I can summarize it into three quick little points. For this reason. Well, what reason? Number one, life's position. The whole three chapters of Ephesians is focused on your position, which is all about being in Christ. Uh, the word they're in, in the Greek, uh, does not bespeak of like, for example, you guys came into this room. That's not this word. Uh, this word doesn't have this idea of movement. This idea has this idea of resting, has this idea of sinking down into, uh, has this idea of oh, finding your location uh, this is like the idea of abiding. Uh, this is the idea of, I find myself in Christ, which is not, I'm not moving in and out of Christ. I'm just, I'm I'm there, I'm stationary. In fact, the language of the first three chapters, chapters is that you are seated in Christ, that you're never to get up from that position. So stay seated in Jesus. In fact, 30 times in the first three chapters, Paul says, in Christ, in him, in whom? 30 times. That is repetition. Which means, by the way, anytime you hear something repeated, it's there for emphasis. So what is Paul emphasizing in the first three chapters? In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in him, in whom, in Christ, in him, in whom. Are you getting this? It's like he's taking a two by four, banging you over the forehead, saying, get it. You have a position. And what's my position in Jesus? And I'm never to leave that position. What is your life supposed to be about? Jesus. What's my focus supposed to be about? Jesus. What is every blessing in my life wrapped up in? Jesus. What's the prayer that Paul's praying in my life? Jesus. What's the power of God demonstrated all about? Jesus. Are you getting this? What's the mystery all about? Jesus. So it seems like Paul has one message in this book. Jesus. And do you know why I love that? Ephesians is not a correction letter. Right? We have these letters in the New Testament that are corrections like Corinthians. Corinth had major problems. Like serious problems. (laughs) I mean, it almost looks like America, truth be told, when you read Corinth and you're like, boy, their issues are a lot like our issues. And Canadians, I'm including you too because you have just as many problems. So North America, I mean, Corinth is like North America. And I'll I'll include Australia because they have a lot of problems too. (laughs) And and you read, you read Corinthians and you're just like, wow, that the early church had serious problems. Uh Uh-huh. But Ephesians, this is not a correction letter. Paul's not saying you had this problem. Let me correct it. Ephesians. It's like Paul is here. He is in prison and he's sitting back saying, how do I, I just want to talk about the marvel of Jesus. And so he sits down and just writes this letter all about Jesus. And there's no correction going on. This is just the outflow of his heart. And what is the outflow of the heart of Paul all about? Isn't that awesome? Is that true in your life as well? Is the whole tenor of your life Jesus? If someone could summarize your life in one word, would it be Jesus? Or as Ian Thomas would say, is the only explanation for your life Jesus? If the world looked at you and how you were living and and how you were functioning and and how you love and, and your joy and your peace and your language, and even in your thought life, if someone could see your thought life, would the only explanation for how you are living be Jesus? Because if the explanation for your life is anything but Jesus, then folks, we have stuff to repent of. And we need to press into Jesus. Because biblically, your life should be all wrapped up in Jesus. Defined by Jesus uh galatians two twenty here's some you know all these verses, <clears throat> but galatians two twenty I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Is that true in you? Colossians three verse three and four For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says this, when Christ, who is our life, and then he goes on, but is that true in you? Is Christ truly your life? Is your position truly Jesus? Are you resting in him? Because the whole theology, the whole content of chapters one through three is all about you are to be seated in Christ. What is chapters four through six all about? Well, what does in Christ look like lived out on my streets? down at my job, in my family. But folks, you can't get to chapters 4 through 6 unless you understand what it means to be seated in Christ. Do you know that your position, that you are dead to sin and you are alive in Christ Jesus our Lord? Is he your position? So in terms of a summary of the first three chapters of of why Paul is praying this incredible prayer at the end of chapter 3, number one is life's position uh, number two is what you could call life's praise. There's an undercurrent to this entire section, <clears throat> which is this whole idea of worship, this whole idea of praise. Uh, in fact, you see this really strongly in, the, in chapter one. Uh, in the blessing section, uh, in verse six, in verse 12, and in verse 14, Paul says that all of this is to the praise of God his glory. And if you go back to those early studies, it's really fascinating that the, the emphasis of what Paul's getting at is that your entire life is to be a praise anthem unto Jesus. Uh, that your life, if I can use the illustration, is like musical theater. I don't know if you like music. I love musicals. I, like, I love musicals. And I've always wanted to live in a real life musical. Because wouldn't it be amazing, like, you're just going about your day, and you're walking down the street, and someone suddenly goes, and then breaks out in a song and dance? <laughs> like, wouldn't that be cool? It's like, you know, we head off to lunch, and everyone's just kind of like, mm, just taking a step forward at the lunch line, and then suddenly someone goes, wait, and then everyone starts spinning the dishes and throwing things around, and, and then after about three minutes, everyone just goes back to normal, and then, as if that was totally fine, you know? <laughs> wouldn't that be amazing? Ever since I was a kid, I was like, I want to live in one of those. And I got close once. When I was in junior high school, I've told this story many times, but when I was in junior high school, there was a really popular song on the radio, which I'm not even going to mention which song it was because it was horrible. (laughs) But it was was the closest thing I at least got to experience to a real-life theater, musical theater experience, where the bell would ring, and we'd go off into the hallways, and without a doubt— for about one week's time period, someone would start singing that song and it would suddenly rush down the entire hall. Everyone would start singing it. People would kind of do some spins and then the bell would ring and all run into our classrooms. And I was like, this is epic. I was so, and I hated the song, but I really loved the experience. Do you know what your life's supposed to be like? Your life is to be a praise anthem unto Jesus. That when when you begin to realize the reality of Jesus in your life, and you begin to realize all that he has done and accomplished, hey, when you begin to realize all that he has saved you from, when when you begin to realize the phenomenal reality of Jesus, shouldn't that just cause praise and worship to bubble forth out of your life? Haven't you ever met those people who were just, they're doing their thing, and then they just start to hum? They just start to sing quietly underneath their breath. They just start, oh, Jesus, I love you. You're so good. What if that was your life and you were so wrapped up in the presence of Jesus that you just couldn't help yourself? You just had to hum and sing and skip once in a while. Yeah, you just started bouncing on your toes. You just started to, and maybe you're not a singer, but, but what if underneath your breath, you're just constantly going, wow, Jesus, I love you. Wow, you're so good. You're just, man, I just, oh, you're so phenomenal. And you're supposed to be this life of praise that's coming out of you. And by the way, this is all over scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Do you realize that everything you do is worship? Worship is more than singing. Worship is how you live. Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. I, I love what David says in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 34. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for His loving kindness endures forever. Psalm 7, verse 17, I will give thanks to the Lord according to His righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. You can't read through much of the Psalms without hearing that, oh, I'm going to sing to Jesus. Oh, I'm just overwhelmed. Ah, oh, I'm just going to get wrapped up in worship. Does your life, it is your life, a praise anthem to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's not that you have to sing all the time. But is there just something bubbling forth out of you because of that position that you're in? And lastly, really quick, number three, is this whole idea of life's purpose. And this is really strong in the, in the well, in the entire section, but very specifically in chapter three, the first part there, where he's talking about the mystery. And in verse 10, he says that the manifold wisdom of God in your life might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places that there is a divine purpose in your life. And what's that divine purpose all about? Making Jesus known. That you are to be a reflection of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That he made you in his image. And of course, the best illustration of that is the moon. The moon doesn't have its own light. The moon shines forth the light of the sun. And you are made to reflect Jesus to your world. That when the world looked upon your life, they don't see you, they see him. Is that true in you? One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is Romans 11.36. And if you want to summarize the entire Bible in one verse, I think that's a good one. If you want to summarize the entire gospel in one verse, I think that's a good one. If you want to summarize your life in one verse, I think that's a good one. Hey, what is your marriage supposed to be? Romans 11.36. Hey, what is your church supposed to be? Romans 11.36. What is your job supposed to be about? Romans 11.36. What does Romans 11.36 say? (gasps) For from him and through him and to him are all things for his glory alone. What's your life supposed to be? From him, through him, to him for his glory. what's What's your marriage supposed to be? From him, through him, to him for his glory. What's your family life supposed to be? From him, through him, to him for his glory. What's your church supposed to be? From him, through him, to him, for his glory. What about your job? From him, through him, to him, for his glory. See, what, what if your whole purpose was not about you, not about earning a big income, not about having all the applause and the, the prestige? and the? What if it was never about you? What if this has always been about him? And your privilege, your purpose was to make him known. Or as Colossians 1.18 says, that in everything he might have the preeminence. That he would have first place in all things. Is that true in your life? As we get into this prayer over these next several weeks, can I just encourage you? Don't, don't look at this prayer outside of the light of everything that Paul's been talking about is centered on Jesus. Because as we get into the prayer, what you're going to find is that everything in the prayer focuses on one thing. And it's the same thing he's been talking about this entire time for this reason would you go after him would you would you make him your focus and purpose and joy and delight and let's pray Uh, lord we do love you thank you that you are all things that we need for life and for godliness and lord i pray that we would understand that our position is in you that there should be this overwhelming praise anthem that just bubbles forth out of our life. It's not that we're having to twist our arm to sing about you. It's just the moment we gaze upon your face, we just cannot help but praise you. That it would just bubble forth out of us. That our purpose, Jesus, is to make you known that we are to get out of the way so that you could be seen. So Lord, I just pray that even as we begin this new series, of the study of the end of chapter 3 of Ephesians, that you would press that reality deep into our hearts and our minds that this is all about You. Lord, You are good. Your mercies do endure forever. We just give You all the praise and the glory. And Lord, this morning we want to sing. We don't want to just sing words. We want to worship and give You all the praise and all the glory. So Lord, even this time, may it be from You and through You and to You for Your glory alone. Lord Jesus, in Your precious,
0: powerful name we pray. Amen Go to Ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.